As far as prison populations go, nobody's got the United States beat. We're number one with a bullet. And I'm getting that out of the way right now because this week's show addresses conditions in Russia where there are also a whole lot of people locked up in jails and prisons of various kinds. I just happen to be American, so there, I said it. Though you'll hear a bit later about Ukraine's prison system, this is not, strictly speaking, a comparative analysis. Now, Russia is also notorious for its political prisoners. Indeed, the authorities have passed all kinds of new laws since the February 2022 invasion of Ukraine that outlaw most forms of anti-war self-expression. And this is only added to the political prisoners that were already behind bars before the full-scale war. People like journalist Ivan Safronov and opposition politician Alexei Navalny. There are, are lots of new names today. Fellow oppositionists like Ilya Yashin and Vladimir Karamuza are now imprisoned also. Who knows how many unknown activists have been dragged into court for anti-war actions. Journalist Evan Kershkovich is still hidden away in pretrial detention, awaiting his treason trial and hopefully a speedy deal with Washington that brings him home. But what is it like for these people in prison? And what's it like for their loved ones? That's the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. This week, we're talking about prison conditions in Russia, both the bird's eye perspective of the system as a whole, and how it affects the lives of individuals caught in political repressions. But before we get to the show, here's a brief message from one of my colleagues. Hello, I'm Eilish Hart, the editor of The Beat, a special newsletter from Medusa covering Central and Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. The Beat brings one feature story directly to your inbox every week. You may have spotted our articles on Medusa's website, but some of our work is only available to subscribers, like my recent interview with freelance journalist Fabrice Dupre who had just returned from a reporting trip to Ukraine's Kherson region. People have lived eight months under Russian occupation, mm -hmm. and now it's six months which have been living under near-constant shelling. It's a very heavy atmosphere where you can really feel the exhaustion of the people who are still living there. Kherson was the only regional capital that Russian forces had managed to capture since the launch of the full-scale invasion. Ukrainian troops liberated the city on November 11, 2022, officially ending eight long months of Russian occupation. I spoke to Fabrice after his second reporting trip to Kherson since the liberation. When he arrived there last November, a little more than a week had passed since the Russian retreat. Local residents were still celebrating alongside Ukrainian soldiers, but the mood had already begun to shift. You could already hear shelling in the background. It wasn't as bad as it got later, but it Already you could kill that shelling and already you had people who, you know, told me, like, we think the Russians are going to try to take their revenge and to bomb the city, so we kind of want to leave. So it was like a mix of happiness and already kind of tension growing when I was there at that time in November. The Ukrainian authorities estimated in January that fewer than 60,000 people remained in Kherson, less than 20% of the city's pre-war population. The city is now kind of too big because a lot of people have left. The city is not empty, but you can feel that it's not full. In villages farther away from the front line, meanwhile, local farmers are trying their best to get back to work, despite the fact that their fields are riddled with landmines. Ukrainian officials estimate that 30% of the country remains contaminated, and they expect demining efforts to cost upwards of $37 billion. 
But you have, you know, farmers taking things in their own hand and just kind of trying to demine or at least to survey field themselves and kind of drive around when there are mines and stuff like that, which of course is still extremely dangerous. There are incidents pretty regularly, but you know, they have the feeling that they don't really have a choice, that they need to work. They are trying to, yeah, to make it work somehow. During his most recent reporting trip, Fabrice found that Herson residents, unlike their compatriots in the Donbass and the Kharkiv region, didn't seem worried about the possibility of Russian troops recapturing the area. You know, you have the river, which is this like kind of big barrier. And I didn't get the feeling that anyone expects the Russian army to cross this river again. The locals, everyone has told me that, you know, life is only going to be able to start again when, when the Russians are pushed back even further. With that in mind, I asked Fabrice if Kherson's inhabitants have high expectations for Ukraine's much-talked-about spring counteroffensive. I'm not sure about expectations, but hopes are really high. Several people told me, like, when the Russians will be pushed back, the shelling will stop. When the shelling stops, people are going to come back. And when people come back, then, you know, the life in the city can start again. For more insight into events in Ukraine and across the Eurasian region, subscribe to The Beat today. You can find our sign-up page on Medusa's website or email beat at medusa.io. That's B-E-E-T at medusa.io, and we'll add you to our mailing list. Okay, let's get to this week's show. My first guest is Professor Judith Palo, a scholar who's spent the last two decades researching women's penal colonies in Russia. She's currently the research director of the Gulag Echoes Project at the University of Helsinki's Alexandria Institute, where she leads a team that has been studying issues like Wagner prisoner recruitment, forced labor in Russia's federal penitentiary service, the geography of Stalin's terror, and a whole lot more. First with the coronavirus pandemic, and then thanks to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the Gulag Echoes Project has had to adapt to canceled fieldwork and collapsed cooperative academic links in Russia. But these developments also make it even more important to understand Russia's prison system. So I was very excited to talk to Dr. Paolo. And I consider myself a pretty informed guy when it comes to Russia. But it turns out that I started my interview by asking a question that isn't remotely as simple as I thought. How big is Russia's prison system today? Like how many prisons and how many prisoners are we talking about? Well, one of the things you're going to find is that you ask what you think are simple questions, and then I have to qualify them. Right. I will give you the official number of prisoners on the 1st of January 2023, there were 433,000, okay. so under, under half a million prisoners. The reason why I would want to qualify that is because a few years ago, the Federal Prison Service introduced a new reform, and they called a forced labor an alternative to the deprivation of freedom. But it's not an alternative to the deprivation of freedom because the people who either get the sentence of forced labor as an alternative to the deprivation of freedom or who are transferred onto that from being in a standard regime colony or or strict regime colony, they actually are required and have to live in barracks, the majority of which are in the territory of existing correctional colonies. What they're creating is the equivalent of open prisons in any Western jurisdiction. Something like 180,000 serving prisoners, prisoners who are serving sentences, 
could be transferred onto this so-called alternative to incarceration. So the whole point in the understanding of alternatives to incarceration in Western jurisdictions is that the people live at home and, you know, and they have to go and see a probation officer, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly, and so on. A few years ago, the Federal Prison Service introduced a new reform. Serving prisoners, prisoners who are serving sentences, could be transferred onto this so-called alternative to incarceration. So, you know, my interpretation of this is, on the one hand, it's very good that prisoners are going to be allowed out on license to work during the day as long as they return at a particular time to the correctional colony. But still, it's a complete myth to say that this is not a form of imprisonment. That's why I'm very sceptical about the number under half a million of prisoners in Russia. And of course, since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, there are a whole lot of other people who are in Fasin's carceral facilities, namely captives from Ukraine, whether they're prisoners of war or whether they're civilians. And I don't think their numbers are being recorded. It seems to me highly unlikely that they're being recorded. So this is a very approximate number. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it is true that there are about half as many people in prison in Russia today than there were at the end of the 1990s. And so how did they achieve that fall in the number in the prison population? They, it doesn't necessarily mean that the courts are sending fewer people to prison than they did in the past. You can achieve that reduction by reducing the length of sentence. You can also reduce it by giving people early release, known as UDO. And they are still subject, in this case, to, to Nadzor. And if they commit another offense or if they don't go and sign in at the penal inspectorate, then they're back in prison. And then there's the decriminalization of certain offenses. So that's how it's reduced. But one thing that Russia hasn't done is develop a proper probation service. If you take some of the other East Central European countries and then also in the Balkans, countries like Croatia, they've developed proper probation service. So you can, courts can choose to give people alternatives, genuine alternatives to incarceration. I mean, there is some, there is some corrective labor. You can have house arrest in Russia and so on. But still, far more people are sent to prison by the courts in Russia than in other jurisdictions. So the mistake would be to think that this reduction in the number has been achieved by just sending fewer people to prison. Have there been large-scale attempts at reforms of the Russian prison system that have simply failed, or is it simply that they haven't even tried? All the discussion about reform at the end of the Soviet Union and in the 1990s was about getting rid of the Soviet inheritance, getting rid of the legacy of the Gulag. And that's what the great defenders of human rights, the human rights activists were talking about. But then when Russia joined the Council of Europe in 1996, it pledged to reform the prison system. And instead, it began to be understood prison reform as norm compliance of complying with certain standards laid down in the Council of Europe. There was sort of a battle going on between two 
different understandings of what was needed in prison reform. So there were those people who were not quite abolitionists, but, you know, the equivalent of the abolitionists there are in the West, who were saying, we need to completely get rid of everything that's left over from the Soviet Union. We've got to have a whole rethink about punishment. And those people, and who included, of course, the prison officers and the prison service, who wanted to keep things more or less as they were and just show their compliance with the Council of Europe by ticking a series of boxes that were understood as improving the conditions of detention. So that sort of conflict was shown in the 2009-2010 when a reform was introduced that was called the New Concept for the Development of the Prison Service to the Year 2020 or something along those lines. And the initial drafting of it, and when it was first published, actually was going to replace correctional colonies with their dormitory accommodation, where prisoners are put in a dormitory of 120, actually at the time it was more like 200 or more people. And it acted as a sort of social unit. It had self-governance and, and so on. So the idea was to replace that by cellular type accommodation with cells for up to eight people. So they were never going to go on over to, if you like, the Western ideal, which is single cell accommodation, whereby the prisoner is locked in safely by him or herself at night, but during the day associates with the other prisoners in what are known as association areas. They didn't go that far. But anyway, so the idea was that the correctional colony was going to be replaced by a completely different sort of way of incarcerating convicted offenders. And the new prison director, Reima, who later ended up in prison for corruption. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh about these things, but you have to have a sort of black humor to work on the Russian prison system. Anyway, so he was brought in to push this reform through. And there was enormous resistance from the peripheries, and particularly from those big penal peripheries in places like Sverdlovsk Oblast, Piermoblast, Irkutsk, you know, these are Vladimir, of course, Oblast. And basically, they sabotaged the reform and it was dropped. And what they kept from that reform was, surprise, surprise, securitization, discipline, etc., etc. And there was plans to reconstruct the CISO, the pre-trial or remand prisons, which had been the subject of what's known as a pilot judgment by the Council of Europe that showed that there was systematic violations of prisoners' human rights because of the overcrowding and the appalling conditions in CISOs. So the first, this first reform from 2010 to 2020 was sort of, it had these two aims. One was to completely change the correctional colony system. That failed, that was ditched. But the other bit of it was to improve the conditions in pretrial detention centers. So that was that reform that finished in 2020. And they built some new remand prisons, not very many of them. And overcrowding in remand prisons is still a major problem in Russia. But then a new reform was introduced to go from 2020 to 2030. What they're now going to do is to replace pretrial detention centers and correctional colonies by multifunctional super prisons outside towns, on the outskirts of towns. What does multifunction mean in this context? They're going to be for 3,000 prisoners. In the UK, we call this type of Titan prison. And when they were going to 
be introduced in the Ukraine, there was extraordinary protest against it because the larger your prison, the less able you are to give individual attention to prisoners, the less able you are actually to prevent human rights abuses, torture. Multifunctional means that you'll have the pretrial prisoners, so people who are still, in theory, not guilty, or in theory, they're innocent until mm-hmm. proven guilty, say that you know well over 90% are going to be proven guilty once they get to court. And they will also have convicted prisoners at all the different levels from standard regime to strict regime to special re- regime. I think they'll still keep separate prisoners for life sentences and possibly for the Asobi regime. So you'll have all categories of prisoners. You'll also have juveniles in there. I don't quite know if they're planning to have women uh, in them as well. And then you'll have courthouses in there also. The one that's planned for Moscow is going to have three different Russian Orthodox churches in it, one for the convicted prisoners, one for those on remand, and one for the officers. So nobody's ever going to need to leave this extraordinary, almost sort of mini town. And the idea is that every oblast, well-populated oblast, will have one of these. And then the less well-populated oblasts will share them. Apart from you know what I was saying about the larger the prison, the more difficult it is to prevent ill-treatment and torture and actually individualize punishment. It also means that prisoners will continue, as they always have been in Russia, to be very far from home and very difficult to access by their families and friends. Mm-hmm. So on the whole, it seems that they've gone from one extreme with reforms to you know, another extreme. So is the prison system sort of turning back toward what people assumed the gulag was like? I mean, what you're describing sounds sort of nightmarish. What has happened is that when it joined the Council of Europe, it did take some steps in the right direction. And this was under under the sort of Dmitry Medvedev when he seemed to remember that he was a lawyer Mm -hmm. before he forgot uh, everything he learned at law school. So it started off in the right direction I would say now it's going backwards, but not necessarily to the gulag. Mm. I can understand why human rights groups in Russia call the present prison system the neo-gulag. But from the point of view of an academic, that is a a dreadful sort of simplification and is fudging the issue because that's implying, in a sense, that everything that's bad in the prison system today is a carryover or a legacy from the Soviet era. And, you know, my argument is that actually it's a product of the authoritarian government and the way in which violence is just sort of underpinning so much of Russian politics, social order, and and so on. And the thing that's particularly, I think, different from the Soviet era is just the degree of corruption that there is in the system right from the top down to the bottom, the system, you know, it can only get people to work for it or people working in the system because they're able to predate on the prisoners, they're able to engage in that sort of illegal marketing correctional columnies, or they're able to use prison labor to make products that they sell. You know, some of the leading officials in for sin from the last two, three, four decades are in prison now for corruption. Mm-hmm. A couple of them for allegations of murder as well. So during the Soviet era, of course, there was corruption. We know all about Yeltsin and his the Yeltsin family, but just nothing like the prison system today. 
I wanted to try to get a sense of what the conditions are like for both the average ordinary prisoner, if there's such a thing, and political prisoners. Because one, one of the things that comes to mind when following any kind of political trial is often that, that these defendants, they become ill in the courtroom or while, while they're in CISO, they have to be you know, whisked away to a hospital at some point where they lose an enormous amount of weight and it's not necessarily due to a hunger strike. You've mentioned overcrowding, you've mentioned torture. What goes on in Russian prisons that seems to make everybody sick, you know, especially political prisoners? It seems like a, just a huge health risk for a lot of people to be in the prison system. I mean, that's absolutely right. So we've got to distinguish between political prisoners and ordinary prisoners. And within the political prisoners, we've got to distinguish between the high-profile political prisoners and the people who go going out onto the street with a placard or have ticked your channel and uh, being arrested. Now, if we go back to the structure of the components of the Russian prison system, what you've got to remember is that there are seven remand prisons or CZOs that are directly subordinate to central FASIN, the central administration of FASIN, which actually are pretrial detention centers that are run by the FSB, although nobody admits that officially which allows the FSB to interfere in the conditions of detention in which prisoners are held. The principle that you should never violate, but which is, I think, violated in Russia, and actually not only in these prisons, is that you should never have the people who are investigating crimes being the same people or the same agency as those who are determining the conditions of detention. Prisons are meant to be neutral politically. So the conditions in these seven FSB prisons are quite different from those in other remand prisons. In the FSB prisons, and this is where Navalny's, the Khodorkovsky's, the Karamurzas are held, and of course, the, you know, the foreign spies that are caught by the FSB. So what they've got there are small cells and people are held either in isolation, although they're not meant to be in isolation for more than 15 days or in twos in those cells. So conditions there are quite different. And in terms of physical conditions, they are acceptable according to Council of Europe's Committee for the Prevention of Torture standards. But the degree of isolation that the people incarcerated there suffer is extraordinary and sort of very, very worrying. And from the, the interviews I've done with some of these people, very difficult to live through. So that is very different from the other remand prisons where you have these cells which can have 40 people in them, where at various periods they've had to have shared bunks. Some of the prisoners have had to sleep on the floor where the sanitary conditions aren't good. And, you know, I'm thinking of places like Butyrka in Moscow. And, and in most of the regional capitals, the pre-trial detention centers are, you know, come from the 19th century and, you know, have been poorly maintained and so on. And the problems about light, about damp and so on, and overcrowding. So some political prisoners can end up in the Fortova or Kremlovsky Central, and the conditions in those two are just completely, completely different. And then once they're convicted, of course, the political prisoners, depending on their sentences, can end up either in a standard regime colony or in a strict regime colony or in a special regime colony. I think what was in the pipeline 
was what was known as a pilot judgment. This is when there are so many similar cases from all over the country and from different people going to the European Court of Human Rights that the European Court takes the view that it is a systemic problem in the prison system and they put together what's known as a pilot judgment. So there's just an assumption that anybody who is sent to one of these facilities is going to suffer from violation of their human rights. And against Russia, there had already been two pilot judgments. One was called Ananyev in 2012, which was about the conditions in CISOs and overcrowding in CISOs, where it was found that there was less than two square meters per prisoner in so many different parts of the Russian Federation. It wasn't a case of one bad apple, you know, which is always the Russians' excuse. Russia always says, oh, well, it's an aberration, but everywhere else is okay. But a pilot judgment says, no, everywhere else isn't okay. We think everything everywhere else is just as bad. So there was that. And then there was in 2019, what was known as the Tomov pilot judgment, which was about the conditions in the Avtozaks and Stalipin carriages. So that was all about the transportation issue and the fact that Russia was sending its prisoners a thousand miles to serve their sentences, which wasn't good for family relations. And before Russia invaded Ukraine, the discussion was about the next pilot judgment in the pipeline about health. The main advice for somebody getting a custodial sentence in Russia for them to survive it is uh, to be perfectly healthy when you enter. Right. It's just, it's terribly dangerous if, you, if you've got anything wrong with you because the Russian prison service has its own internal health system, which it's not meant to have. Progressive prison systems, penal systems, generally use the civilian health services. So sort of doctors come in or prisoners go to ordinary hospitals. Russia insists on having its own health service. And the problem with that is that any uh, sort of trained doctors or doctors who are any good and surgeons who are any good, they don't particularly want to work in the prison service. So the quality of the medical staff is pretty low, but also there's just not enough funds to buy the medicines that are, are necessary to buy the sort of up-to-date equipment and so on. And also, I think it's got better now than it was in the past. The doctors have, you know, two bosses. So they're both subordinate to the Nachalnik of a colony or the CISO and to the, if you like, the Hippocratic Oath. The medical service is meant to be autonomous within the prison service. In practice, the doctors are reputed and alleged to overlook, for example, physical signs of torture and to falsify records. And Nachalniki of colonies can refuse to allow prisoners to be transported either to the prison hospital in a region or to the civilian medical services if they can't be treated in the colony. These are places, the colonies, where infectious diseases spread very easily because of the overcrowding and because, you know, you've got 120 men or women living in a dormitory very close to one another. Because in the dormitories, the um, minimum standard of space is two square meters. And I don't know if you've been into any of the colonies, but you must have seen pictures. They're sharing bathroom facilities. So 
then there's also cases when prisoners simply for punitive reasons are deprived of sufficient food. When a prisoner is sent off into the shizo, which is the disciplinary cell in yeah. prisons, their food ration is reduced because they're no longer working. That's clearly one reason why Navalny has lost, lost so much weight, I think. Professor Paolo also does comparative research studying the prison systems in Russia and Ukraine. As she explained to me, public oversight and the role that civil society is able to play are crucial for reforming these prison systems. They're pretty awful in both countries, she says, but there are key differences that could mean a lot in the future. One of the projects I'm involved in at the moment is with a colleague, a lawyer colleague in Kharkiv, and we've been comparing the Ukrainian and the Russian prison system since both of them joined the Council of Europe. They were basically the same system at the end of the Soviet Union. And the big, big difference, which is why we have more optimism about the Ukrainian prison system for the future, it's not a very good period for prison reform in Ukraine at the moment, as you can imagine. And Russia is precisely about the strength of civil society and of prison monitoring, which in Ukraine is genuine and real and hasn't been completely sort of emasculated by the state in the way it has in Russia. In Russia, again, you have to make distinctions between, you know, the Moscow Helsinki group and the independent civil society organizations that used to exist in Russia, and many of which have had to migrate abroad or whose members are now languishing in some of these awful places that I've been describing to you. So you have to distinguish between those and the, if you like, the official independent monitoring bodies, which is the ONK and the regional ombudsmen and women who have part of their, their job is apparently to keep an eye on prisons. And the ONK is usually translated as the public monitoring bodies, which was set up in 2008 by Medvedev. They're meant to be made up of just members of civil society organizations, and they are re-elected or reselected every three years. And what happened is within about two or three reselection cycles, the genuine human rights defenders were replaced either by entrepreneurs who just wanted it on their CV, that they were doing good works and never stepped foot in a, a prison to monitor it, or retired members of the prison service, veterans organizations, and so on. And now they have an obligatory member of the Russian Orthodox Church, occasionally an imam. And they've been thoroughly, if you like, captured by Fasin and by the complex of the network of the Siloviki at the regional level. And whilst there are some heroic members hanging on in there, in some of the ONK, the public monitoring commissions, in, for example, St. Petersburg, I think there's one or two of them who are seriously trying to defend prisoners' rights. You know, what happens on a monitoring visit is that the two members of the ONK are accompanied by the regional prosecutor. They're shown round the prison by the Nachalnik or the deputy Nachalnik, usually the operation and regime department head. And the so-called confidential consultations take place. They show these pictures on the FASIN website 
fact, you know, you have all these guys sitting in their uniforms on one side and this poor lone prisoner on the other side. So what they're engaged in, what I was saying before, is norm compliance. Right. So what they're doing is seeing, has this or that prisoner got two square meters of space or four square meters of space in the CISO? But what they're not allowed to do is talk to the prisoners about torture, ill treatment, when they can make reports to the Nachalnik of the colony, but he doesn't have to do anything about it. Whereas in Ukraine, they are allowed to talk about those things? So I think you'll probably agree that in Russia, the civil society organizations that were not part of this of the structure have done a very good job up till now, or up till they have been silenced and been labeled foreign agents. They were able initially to do very good work. So that is in the 1990s and early 2000s. But they've been silenced and they've been censored and they've had to self-censor if they wanted to stay in the country. And that hasn't happened in Ukraine. The positive developments in the Ukrainian prison system, and they're fairly small ones, have been brought by this pressure from civil society organizations, but also from what's known as the National Preventative Mechanism, the NPM, which consists of the ombudsman, whose primary concern is prisons. And the combination both of the civil society and of, if you like, the official monitoring agency has actually been able to push the prison service in the direction of reform. But there's just this difference. I think in Russia, the problem is the foreign agents law and the way that, you know, anybody who is wanting to look after prisoners' rights, go and find out really what's going on with the political prisoners and protesting that they've just been reduced their powers to influence, to publicize cases and so on. But there's still some very heroic people who are still working. My second guest this week is journalist Ksenia Mironova, who's reported on political cases in Russia for years. Since June 2020, her journalism on this subject has become personal, as she's also the partner of Ivan Safronov, another journalist who was arrested three years ago and sentenced last September to 22 years in prison on treason charges. Senya joined the Naked Pravda to talk a bit about the lives of political prisoners' loved ones, society's expectations of women in this role, and her work to bring this community together. What kind of access do outside people, do loved ones, spouses, family members have? to political prisoners in Russia, to prisoners of any kind. I know that there, there's a big letter-writing campaign for various high-profile political prisoners. How much of the outside world can they even see or talk to? It depends. Because, for example, Ilya Yashin, who is one of the most famous, I guess, uh, political prisoners in Russia. In Moscow, in jail, he had, as I know, some dates with his mother, for example, and in Lefortovo, where Ivan Safronov was, where Evan Gershkovich is right now, like there is no connection with the world. Uh, you have no dates, you have no phone calls, even letters. For example, Safronov had no letters about half a year, just because FSB decided that he doesn't need his letters. What about censorship of letters written to prisoners? I asked Senya if her letters to Ivan are redacted in any way, 
do the prison officials draw big black lines through anything they think is too sensitive or inflammatory? Are some of her messages sent back, undelivered because of something she wrote? She told me that some of her friends and the partners of other political prisoners have learned some circumvention tricks, sending photos with inside jokes and whatnot. The officials responsible for checking this stuff aren't exactly the brightest or the most motivated, she says. It's also hard to say because sometimes with Ivan, we just talk about, like, you know, we live like that already three years. We have only this way for communication. Like, we just talk about family or about work. We don't discuss Putin the whole time. What kind of time is there between messages? Like, if you write him a letter and you mention family and you maybe ask him some questions, how long until you hear back from him? In Portugal, it was about two weeks, sometimes more. And now in prison in Krasnoyarsk, they have seen letter. It's like an email system. So I write this letter and then I pay just by card. And I pay also for his letter. And then he can answer. It's a little bit faster. It's like one week sometimes. Ksenia co-hosts a podcast with Ilya Krasilchik, one of my former Medusa colleagues who now manages a project that assists Russians with issues related to evading mobilization, relocating abroad, getting mental health support, finding charity options, and things like that. On their podcast, Time No Longer, Vremeni Bolsheni Budit, Ksenia and Ilya interview the friends and relatives of political prisoners. They talk to experts on political persecution in Russia and political policing. Stuff like I've done here today, but much better, of course. Two years after Ivan's arrest, I had depression and I felt like nobody understands me. It's like a very special situation and people don't understand how to communicate with you or how to help you. You have these words every two months or every month and it's like you have PTSD the whole time. Even right. if it's not a real PTSD, I guess, because it's not post-trauma. Yeah, Far it's ongoing. It's this trauma the whole time. Mm-hmm. And then I met Tanya, who was a partner of Alexei Polikhovich, who was a Balotna political prisoner. She's his ex-wife. We talked, and she said, like, it's okay, everything that you feel, it's okay. I felt the same. And then I met some other girls. We had a chat, Telegram chat, and just supported each other and nothing more. And I decided that, okay, I'm a journalist. I can do it. I don't really have enough time for like full-time project. It's a podcast. There should be time no longer. I know it sounds weird, but it's from Bible. It's a podcast about families of political prisoners and sometimes about political prisoners too. And we have a closed chat for families of political prisoners closed because we don't want to to talk with FSB. Yeah. We write some instructions for people how to communicate with policemen or FSB and some psychological instructions. And sometimes we have meetings, video calls to like support each other. I cannot say that there are only wives or only partners, but there are more men in Russian prisons. Are there certain expectations of the partners of political prisoners, like from colleagues or within the independent 
community or when you're the partner of a political prisoner, do people expect things of you? Like it's like, well, how come you're not doing this or you didn't do that right the right way? Or is everybody kind of like sympathetic, I guess? Well, first of all, I think that people expect a lot from women. Yeah. <laughs> And if you are a partner of political prisoner, it's even more. Yes, at the first year, I felt terrible because, for example, my friend told me that her friends saw my pictures on Instagram and they told that I don't look like a person who has depression or something. Yeah, yeah. Or sometimes people said to me, like, why are you so sad? He will be free in one year and he'll be a rock star. Right. And I was a journalist and I worked my whole life with political prisoners. Even before I met Vanya, I worked with political prisoners. And I was like, are you crazy? He won't be free in one year. People told that you can find another one or stuff like that. Three years later, people, I don't know, maybe they just think that I'm aggressive. But I, I don't care also anymore. I feel terrible for my younger version when I was 22 years old. Like, I was completely alone. Three or four years ago, I never saw articles about families or about partners, only about political prisoners. Nobody talked about their wives or husbands. For example, I saw that girls who were partners of uh, Balotne political prisoners like media even didn't write their names. You mentioned earlier that some people tried to make you feel better, I guess, by saying, oh, Ivan will be out soon, he'll be a rock star. And obviously that isn't what happened. But do you get the sense that, that being a more famous, more recognized political prisoner affords someone better treatment in prison? It doesn't necessarily mean that they'll have a shorter sentence, but does that change the experience? I think it also depends because when a political prisoner has a lot of letters, then yes, it shows the stuff in prison that people care about this person. But at the same time, it doesn't work if you are Putin's enemy. If you are Alexei Navalny, then it doesn't matter how many people support you. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.